in rereading my journals, I mean, I'm I am up and down emotionally. Yeah, I mean, some of these notes are very detailed. I mean, it's amazing to me when I actually write well in here. You can tell when I'm rested because my penmanship is much better. <laughs> when I sure. look, it is in in this case, these two pages. Looking down, I'm like, wow, Matt, you you actually like know how to how to use a pen. Um, I have Silver's breeding in here too. He's got so he's got some thoroughbred in him and Appaloosa through Apache Chickle, I think, mm-hmm. out of uh, on his. Uh, dad's side. So that explains his speed. Yeah. <laughs> right there. Occasionally when I would race him uh, against some of my other horse friends who had, you know, horses they thought were fast or when I was on the trail and Silver was rested and somebody would have like a quarter horse they thought was pretty fast. We'd be in like fifth gear, you know, full on gallop and he could find a six gear and just to you know take off like it was kind of amazing this is ride of passage i'm laura weber davis chapter 11 silver After Matt Parker and his Appaloosa, Silver, had crossed the Mississippi River, the land opened before them as an Eden of the Midwest. Southern Illinois produced for them craggy rock faces intermingled with hardwood forests and meandering footpaths. Streams and small waterfalls trickling along the river-to-river trail. And I just, I loved it. It was gorgeous. So it was, it was an experience of being on trail in the woods and in the, these hills in a very welcoming area, and and the people there were just wonderful. But it was hot. They were in the Midwest, vastly underappreciated land for its humidity, producing both the richness of its forests and the discomfort of sweat skimming across everything. It was in the 90s nearly every day, with a heat index beyond that. And I was sweating so much. I mean, I would, I would, I have photos of Silver, and and he's a different color because you can see the black skin under his white hair, mm. and he's perpetually wet uh, because it is so humid. I mean, I would sweat through clothes within half an hour of of emerging from wherever I was. It was just, it was, ugh, it was balmy. On from Illinois into Indiana, the crossroads of America. Matt and Silver met and stayed with a horse owner and enthusiast named Todd. My name is Todd Bruther, and at the time I lived on a little 70-acre horse farm. And Todd opened his home to Matt, as Ole Lindgren would say, rather completely. So he rode in that evening, and I had stables and hay and feed and everything he needed, tack rooms and I told him he could stay as long as he wanted to. You know, he looked tired. <laughs> He'd been riding a while. And so uh, he ended up staying. And uh, we washed all of his clothes and things and let the horse rest and eat. We just became, you know, kind of buddies. Todd's daughters loved this horse story so much that they took Matt to school for show and tell. And there he was, tall, slim cowboy with his ruffled up hat and his leather side purse and 
looked the part, you know, he looked the part. So the girls, they really enjoyed that. And they went in and he talked to each different class and uh, they thought that was big time. And his, his family had a peach orchard uh, in town and they had a fairly well-known one. You may think of Georgia as like the peach capital of the world, but that area of the world actually grows some of the best peaches in the country. They actually are. <laughs> it's Kentucky peaches. I have to give them credit, but yeah. And so I went there and we were they like for a day, we hung out and we were harvesting peaches and I was walking through the peach orchard with him. That sounds like heaven. It was. It lo- it was like I was like, "Oh my god, this like the the areas of the Midwest, certainly along the central areas, were some of the most beautiful. I can't I'm telling you. Between southern Illinois, southern Indiana, you know, on the north side of the Ohio, certainly all of the Ohio River Valley in southern Ohio itself, they are so beautiful that I'm, I, I still am like, hmm, when am I going to move there? Or like just, just a cabin anywhere in that area is, is just gorgeous. It's some of the best kept secrets, you know, in the country. From Indiana, Matt and Silver would wend their way between southern Indiana and northern Kentucky. The terrain would dictate their path into Cincinnati. There they were greeted in a public park gazebo by a large group cheering them on. The southern Ohio city holds a special place in the Parker family, as Bill Parker's childhood home was in a near community of Terrace Park. Matt's parents came down to greet him there, and they all stayed with family friends. Matt enjoyed being around people that he loved, but there was a gnawing that took hold when he was off the trail for long. To be able to flip-flop between, you know, 21st century and 19th century, it was just, it was always a mind job for me. Like, it was just difficult. I wanted to stay in it all the time or not at all like it was difficult to you know to have one foot in and one foot out i just i didn't enjoy it matt and silver set back out into the rural stretches of ohio here would be amish country a lifestyle and religion that fascinated matt maybe especially now that he was living with so few modern conveniences himself. A marketplace owned and run by an Amish elder named Roy was recommended to Matt. He documented the trip in his journal. This is Sunday, the 4th of September, 2005. Once I arrived, I found the market to be substantially larger than I expected. I truthfully don't know what I expected, but it definitely wasn't the well-manicured establishment so many from the area flocked to. A stately bearded man around 50 years old approached me, and he didn't speak like any Amish uh, man I had met before without the telltale German accent. Very articulate and polite, he offered any assistance he could, including a pasture and a bed at his home some four miles away. But I knew I was supposed to go there, and I quickly made up my mind to make my first detour, in quotes, since Nevada. Four miles later, I couldn't be happier. He would stay with this Amish family for the better part of two weeks. Speaking only for myself, if I were listening to this and I'd never had any experience with the Amish whatsoever, you might see their, you might see their existence or their way of life as any manner of things. It could be strange or um, useless, you know, antiquated, any of, anything, any pejorative you might put on it. But it does have this purity to it that to live amongst them I found very refreshing. 
and I and I'm generalizing, but just the the community I was living with, I'll say, they loved laughing and joking and things like that, but uh, sarcasm was was virtually lost on them. You know, they were very direct, but they they knew how to tell a good joke. But it was not it's not the same. <laughs> like it, no no two communities are the same. And the the laws that govern or rules that govern those communities are largely set by the elders in that community and then one one individual. And there there was so much sort of kindness and openness and I wanted to experience it. I mean like it was uh, you know, it was an invitation that is not extended to most people, if ever. Why do you feel like they invited you? I don't know. Um, I, I think, you know, maybe they they knew, maybe as Oli knew, that I was a seeker and I was interested in, in experiencing something. I think the fact that it that I had ridden across the United States on a horse, I mean, you know, that's that's a pretty good icebreaker. You know, I just know that it's rare. It's it's exceedingly rare. It was just this beautiful experience that turned into a very difficult experience to transcend. The first few days were were really just visiting with them, and it was those days were filled with some of the most interesting philosophical discussion I've ever had. The discussions that I would have with Roy late into the night, I mean, and some of them got very heated. I mean, my, my journal entries are full of these revelations of, of, of great discussion with this elder in the community, uh, but then also with, they're, they're tinged with some remorse, you know, like maybe I'd offended him, maybe I'd come on too strong. Though Matt and Roy didn't necessarily agree on the role of religion on a modern life, nor the role of a modern life in the practice of faith, Roy and his family, his wife and his adult son, Eddie, took Matt's desire to learn about the community in earnest. On two occasions, there was a large gathering of of community members at Roy's house. The first was to meet me. And the second was for, for Roy's birthday, some days later. And and it was something right out of a painting. I mean, you had 30 buggies, you know, roll up and, you know, with 30 or more horses and then entire families dismounting from the buggies and shaking hands and smiling. And then, you know, meals set out on very long tables and everything is homemade. Everything was made by their own hands and they gather like that, and that's a pretty routine thing. Uh, so I would just say the first you know, week of staying there was just resting and traveling around their community and meeting people. And he learned about daily chores for this Amish family. Every morning they would go out and just take a ladle full of fresh milk out of the, out of the chilling, you know, like a, a huge stainless steel cistern. It was a giant tank. And they just take a you know a jug of milk out and then go set it on the table and they just they drink fresh milk every single morning. And Eddie ran the milking in the barn and so every morning I would wake up before dawn with a gas lantern and walk out and milk the cows with Eddie. And I did that for two weeks. Eddie 
the Amish view and rely on farm animals as commodities. That is to say, they are tools more so than pets. It's a view that can create tension with modern horse owners. The Amish, writ large, have a reputation for working and driving horses hard, sometimes to a pulp. Oftentimes, sending used-up animals to auctions that can lead to Canadian meat processing plants. But the unfavorable view is through a modern lens, as horses have become increasingly domesticated for pleasure purposes. Generally speaking, I would say as a, as a culture, they're not looking at horses like your pals. I mean, they're looking at horses as beasts of burden. I didn't experience anything when I was staying with this community that looked like abuse to me. I didn't, you know, I didn't see anything there. Like I was, I was looking at the horses. I didn't see a single thing. I didn't, I didn't see any puppy mills or any, anything that at all that looked like abuse. But I would say philosophically, I mean, they're, they're animals that are there to be driven. They're animals that are there to provide a service. You know, it is not your show pony. You know, it's, it's there to do a job. Their philosophy when it comes to livestock is just different. It is different, and, and I get why it chafes, you know, against other people's beliefs. I mean, it would chafe against mine, certainly, but I personally did not witness any, anything like that with this particular community. There were parallels to Matt's journey in this Amish way of life. It was hard and grizzled, yet it was also gratifying in its simplicity and straightforward practice. But after several days with this family, There came a day that was just so complicated, it would alter the course of his journey. So I'd been with them for about a week, and I was out, I came back, and Eddie met me in the, on the gravel drive as I was walking back up to the house. And he said, you need to come to the barn really quick, you know, like really fast. And I ran to the barn, and Silver was there, standing in front of the barn. He just, he, he was covered in blood. And he had this horrific wound up his left armpit. He'd lost a couple gallons of blood. What had happened was they had given Silver a little paddock that had three good fences around it, and then next to the house at the, at the shortest part of the rectangle, it abutted their house. And they had a picket fence that was you know a decorative picket fence, but that stood as the fourth fence for this paddock. And it had hostas that had been planted up in between the vertical pickets. What I hadn't known at the time, there was a a piece of low-slung barbed wire that was underneath the hostas. But they'd forgotten about it and didn't or didn't think anything about it. And, and Silver, I think, had reached over the fence to try and get some of the grass in their yard. And his hoof somehow had hooked that loose piece of barbed wire and somehow or another, you know, hooked onto him and he ran down it and it chainsawed his leg. 
and it looked so bad at the time. I mean, I thought it, it almost looked like it, you know, it cut his leg off. It was horrific. I thought I was going to have to put him down like right, right then and there. first order of business was to call the vet and I called the vet and and the vet said I can put him down for you but if I can get a drain in this and stitch it back up and it doesn't blow out then you know he he may live and I said do it and so he he did and I called my folks and told them what had happened it was uh, Labor Day weekend. We had been to a Labor Day party. This is Bill Parker, Matt's dad. Wonderful party. You know, you're just thinking about Labor Day and everything was fun. And then as we're leaving, I get a phone call from Matt on, on my cell phone. And he said, well, Silver's hurt. He's hurt bad. And uh, we don't know what's, what exactly is going to happen. I've written about it extensively in my journal, but I mean, I just like... Um... I said, a horrible day. My horse is out of the race. Earlier this morning, he cut his leg severely on a piece of barbed wire and is now in stitches, lame for at least a month. The trip hangs in the balance, and I'm at my lowest ever. Were you upset with them? Yes, I was, and that's that That was difficult. We put him in a stall he part, we, in the basement of the barn. We sort of partitioned him in there, and he had painkillers and antibiotics and he had a drain put in at the very bottom of the wound and it was stitched up you know from the edge of his brisket and then the backside of his left leg and then he had a drain underneath it uh, within a, a couple of days it was clear he was surviving and matt called and said he's going to need some ongoing medication and some just washing out this terrible cut and then he'll have to be rested. So we uh, drove back down with the trailer and picked him up. With Silver headed back to Michigan, Matt was unsure where to turn. He called his friend Todd in Indiana to tell him what had happened to Silver. And then Todd said and did something that would in many ways single-handedly save this journey. I said, well, you know, I've got plenty of horses. He said, uh, I'll bring you a horse. So um, we talked a bit about what he might like. And he got two horses for me to choose from uh, as a pinch hitter. And there was a, um, a fairly large paint horse and a little dun horse named Handsome Larry. I had a quarter horse, Handsome Larry, that uh, my oldest daughter had used to show Western pleasure with. But, you know, he had been around enough that he, they're not afraid of traffic. And he decided on Handsome Larry, which is a buckskin dun. He was a really good-looking horse. Todd leaves. And, um, you know, I give him a hug, and I'm like, thanks, man. You know, you sa- saved my ass. Uh, I didn't think much about it. I just, that's the person I am. If somebody needs something, it doesn't matter whether I know you or not. If I can, if I can help you in any way, and it's not a great expense to me, then I'm probably going to 
go ahead and do it. I like an adventure and doing something new all the time. So it was just, it was the thing to do and I did it. Todd said goodbye and no sooner had he left. I mean, he had been gone for about an hour and I was, and I'll read this part. I sat reading while Eddie approached slowly. I noticed blood on his shirt and asked where it had come from, expecting him to say a cow or a sow or such a thing, when he said, I've got some bad news for you. In a tone of calm honesty, only the Amish could have about a horse. That horse Todd left you hurt himself. What? I said. And as I ran in terror to the barn for the second time, in less than a week, I demanded he tell me how bad it was before I got there. I just couldn't take another shockingly bad injury. I don't think you'll be able to take him, is all he managed, before we rounded the corner and I gasped at what I saw. Somehow he'd managed to split his head clean down the middle, five inches across and three inches deep, right down to the skull. I lurched, tensed, up my arms in disbelief that this could happen again. Saying, half crying, half yelling, why? Why did this happen? Why is this happening? How did this happen? I need you to tell me, Eddie, how did this happen? And so what had happened was uh, in those parking spots for horses, they they have a, a chain that hooks up to a feeding trough and they lead the horse in headlong and they hook up the chain to his halter and then they eat in front of them and they have like 20 of these in their barn but handsome larry had never been exposed to that and i hadn't even thought about doing that it's second nature to the amish they have like well here's a you know a brief parking spot for your horse and so they just let him in there hooked him up but then when handsome larry backed out a little bit you know having eaten what he was done eating the chain jerked on his face and it surprised him and so he reared up as hard as he could but held by the chain and then he came down and slammed his head into the edge of that feeding trough and split his head in half. So we ended up calling the same vet (laughs) who just couldn't believe it. And he said, he looked at it and he said, I can stitch this up. And he said, do you want my advice? And I, you know, he took me off to the side, you know, so I wasn't talking to Eddie. All of us, again, bloody, Eddie's bloody, you know, the vet's there for the second time in a week. Just And he he quietly said, this place is cursed for you. And he said, I, I'm going to sew up this horse and I'll give you some antibiotics and, you know, some painkillers for him. And my advice is, is you cut the strap off your bridle, the forehead strap off your bridle and get down the road as fast as you can. Just leave. And I did that day. I got everything together. And for all the trauma that had happened to Handsome Larry, I didn't ride him for a few days. I mean, I was like, he's going to have the worst headache known to man. He was doped up on painkillers and I had to irrigate it. And it was full of flies for days. I mean, it was just, it was a bad wound, but he was, he was fine. Like in four or five weeks, I mean, he looked perfectly normal again. Handsome Larry was on the mend, and Matt was back on the trail with this new horse. Silver, back in Ann Arbor, was not doing as well. His injury became infected. And it needed to be re-stitched and irrigated routinely, and then my dad, 
on my mom and dad and ended up doing that. It was not uh, not that much fun, actually, because I, I think every day Katie and I would, would go out there and you had to put on a glove and you had to take uh, saline, I think normal saline, and stick your hand up in there about that far into the cut, uh, almost up to my wrist, and, and wash and flush it out. Matt's mom, Katie, wasn't worried about the veterinary work they would have to do. I was more concerned that the horse would rear up and get me in the front. But the horse really, you know, was a a wonderful horse. I knew about horses from the time the boys were young because something my dad loved. My dad loved horses. Though this was outside of Katie's experience with animal care, she'd once been interested in the medical field and wasn't deterred by tending to Silver's horrific wound. So I wasn't too too afraid of that. It just was a matter of every single day doing it multiple times. And Silver wasn't bad about that. I mean, I'm sure he wasn't enjoying it, but he, he seemed to uh, take that pretty well. <sighs> that, that horse is really a war horse, I gotta say. Matt wrote in his journal. Silver will no longer be with me for the duration of the trip. Possibly he may return. I can't be sure. Either way, I will. it will take at least a month for him to recover. The barbed wire wound was extensive, damaging the muscle inside his left front leg. I am devastated. He is my best friend, and now I must go on without him, possibly on to failure. I face so much only to come this to this point and lose him. So, yeah, that was a bad day. Yeah, it was it was pretty crappy. On the next ride of passage, Matt rides through the nation's capital. I looked at the stairs, and I was like, okay, man, like, let's go. And he just, I took him by the reins, and he just went dunk, 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 up the steps. Ride of Passage is edited by Rachel Ishikawa. The Ride of Passage theme is by Bob Scon. Additional music by Blue Dot. I'm Laura Weber-Davis. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.